Hello and welcome to episode 112 of the Do More With Your Money podcast. Today I'm joined by three of my colleagues from the investment team and we'll be reviewing what's happened in the first quarter of 2022. Joined for Kevin for his first podcast today. So would you like to, in podcast tradition, tell us something you've done for the first time this week? Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, I think important to raise the point that uh, this is the first time I ever slept in a brewery uh, last night. So I stayed at the Kilman pub just along the road. Terrific little place. Highly recommend it. Plenty of beers? Plenty. <laughs> <laughs> well, turning from... Kevin's first time at the at a brewery to, to, to the focus today of what we want to really bring to life for our, our clients is really what's been happening in this the first quarter and how it's impacted the true potential portfolio solutions. But maybe before getting in there, let's think about some of those key data points that we've been seeing over the quarter and, and what have they been and how have we been interpreting those? Well, I think in summary, remarkable data. Um, last quarter and they're all interlinked so very strong employment very strong inflation and underpinned that was a uh, remarkable consumer sentiment and uh, robust demand and I think this all feeds uh, feeds from the policy actions that were taken um, in the start of the COVID outbreak mm. and that was accelerated by the fiscal stimulus mm. from the US uh, about this time last year so what we're seeing in broad-based employment markets is full recovery in employment markets from the original COVID outbreak. Uh, levels of unemployment now are back to where they were mm-hmm. um, in late 2019. And in fact, in places like the US, showing that they might even go below that and go to 40-year um, lows. Um, similar in the UK, we're um, and similar in, the, uh, in Europe as well, I think measures of uh, consumer sentiment show robust real consumer demand. Now the inflation profile we're seeing in energy prices and in rising good prices will slightly erode the composition of uh, that demand but the data through the previous quarter was very strong and it shows a consumer which is in fairly healthy shape. And you've touched on there the the inflation backdrop. It's been something that's been a real focus of some of the the podcasts over the recent months and indeed way back into to last year as well. Where are inflation levels today, and and how high are they relative to to history? They're uncomfortably high. So I think if we were to characterise um, US, Europe, um, and the UK, really we're seeing unprecedented levels of inflation post the early 1980s. Now that's primarily as a result of rising commodity prices. So global oil prices got back through $100 a barrel um, towards the end of the quarter. That's feeding through into rising energy prices for heating, for instance, and also at the petrol pumps. And the COVID supply shocks that have been ongoing for two years feeding into rising uh, goods prices. So putting that in, in, in broad numbers, we're seeing inflation close to 8% in the UK, Europe and the US, which is um, which is very high. And I suppose the other side of that we're now starting to see, or particularly with the Bank of England, we've seen them move three times now, but we've started to see other central banks move in that, that yeah. direction as well. Yeah, I think the levels of unemployment give central banks the confidence that they need to start accelerating policy tightening. So this year is going to be dominated by rising interest rates. Mm. I think what's quite interesting just on the labour front and it ties into the uh, inflation is that you're starting to see in the US more people coming into the workforce perhaps because they've spent the cheques um, that they received from the government in the US last year 
prices are going higher, so people are coming back into the workforce, so the participation rate is slowly grinding higher, mm-hmm. um, one to watch. And I suppose bringing that to life then in terms of equity markets, how yep. have they performed in, in that backdrop, as, as Kevin has alluded to, it's robust, but there are, are challenges there, and there's certainly been that's reflected in markets at times. Yeah, absolutely. So you've seen quite a noticeable spike in volatility in the first quarter, and that started off in January in the US market, where because of these inflation prints, markets started to price in higher interest rate expectations. So we've gone from, what, four maybe at the start of the year to nine, ten yeah. uh, for the full full 2022 in the US. So that's created more volatility, particularly in equities, particularly in the US, and especially in the more sensitive sectors, such as consumer discretionary technology. So you did see a bit of weakness, quite a bit of weakness in the US market in January. Then we saw continuation of volatility in February as the unfortunate situation in Ukraine took hold. And and therefore we saw weakness in European equities, um, particularly those that have got stronger linkages with Russia, the likes of Germany, heavily dependent on energy. And then if we look closer to home, what's been quite interesting is that perhaps the UK economy is being more challenged, but UK equities have actually delivered a positive return up 2.9% uh, over the quarter, uh, which is fantastic, uh, given the amount of volatility and uncertainty in markets. And that's been driven by the high weighting to commodity commodities, raw materials, um, energy sectors up around 30% over the quarter, large weighting within the FTSE 100. So there are opportunities out there, and that's what we try and look for, that's something within the growth line portfolios yeah. we've been overweight in the UK. Um, so that's what we've seen. I just wanted to bring Kevin back in in terms of policy changes. So certainly we've seen policy going in one direction in developed markets. Maybe the contrast to that is what we've been seeing in China, where we've seen a much more supportive um, monetary yes. policy environment and even to, to an extent a fiscal environment as yeah. well. So I think it's likely that China is at the lower bound of what it can do in terms of monetary policy. So it did a, a an interest rate cut of only 0.1% yeah. um, in the previous quarter. Now, given the magnitude of the uh, demand shocks from rolling zero COVID policy, that's very modest. So it suggests that um, officials in China are going to try and ease policy through other channels. So through the fiscal channel, um, so that will likely be encouraging banks to make credit more available and perhaps to loosen the standards of credit normally applied to assessing bank loans and other initiatives such as uh, delaying intended taxes on properties. So really trying to support very sensitive parts of the market in what is a difficult time for China. Yeah, and Chris Paul has, has alluded to the very difficult circumstances that we've seen in, in yeah. Ukraine and how that's impacted asset markets. Can you discuss how that's been from, from your perspective and how asset markets behaved in that, that period of time? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe if we just start with, with what happened immediately and really that is the stock market sold off. We saw equity markets sell off. Uh, we saw a, a bit of a flight to quality. So what do I mean by that? I mean that investors are looking for safe havens. So what are those safe havens? Uh, things such like government bonds, uh, gold, certain currencies as well. So US dollar, Japanese yen. They're all examples of what happened in the 
sort of initial shock of, yeah. of what we saw with the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict overall. I think, you know, if we look at um, how we were positioned, so the true potential portfolios as a starting point, I'm really pleased to say that we were actually very, very lightly positioned towards Russian assets overall. So that's Russian equities, Russian bonds, the ruble, the very, very small part, sub half percent part of the true potential portfolio yeah. proposition overall. I think, you know, if we then sort of fast forward a little bit and we think about, you know, where we are right now, um, this may come as a, a surprise to, to some of the viewers who are watching, but actually equity markets have been positive for March. You know, if you look at global equities in sterling terms, they're up nearly 5% over the month of March, which is, is pretty incredible overall. You've seen commodities rally. So obviously, you know, one of the things that we talked about earlier was um, the kind of supply demand dynamics of commodities overall and the tightness of supply, particularly in certain commodities such as wheat, where a lot of the supply of wheat comes from both Russia and Ukraine overall. So you saw that big spike in the wheat price when, when the conflict started. Um, but all of that is, is sort of filtering into, um, in some ways, what was quite a strong month for equities in March. Obviously, the conflict is, is still ongoing. Um, there isn't a, a formal resolution there as of yet. If we think about what all of us are doing here, which is really, you know, basically day to day managing those positions, understanding the, the different pieces of news, information, data that's coming through overall. But I think in some ways investors are, are maybe slightly looking through what's happening and looking more over the long term overall. And in, in terms of some of those commodity moves, certainly very significant in terms of what we saw in the oil price initially, but where we are today, I think we're around $103, $104 a barrel versus yeah, exactly. what we peaked at 130 or something like that, yeah. that sort of level. Yeah. So it just shows to Paul's earlier point that volatility is really everywhere as, yeah. as, a, as a result. Absolutely. And how, how do we think about that? How do we think about volatility from a, a true potential portfolio context? Yeah, look, this is maybe a slightly uncomfortable thing to say, but... In some ways, volatility brings opportunity. And what do I mean by that? I mean, if you're a fund manager and there's volatility within a certain asset class, then actually it gives you the potential to access that asset class at a favourable price. Because obviously if, if things are going up and down, if, if you have an ability to understand and to pick a certain asset when it's pricing at a low level, then obviously that's, that's a good trade. You know, that's a way that a fund manager makes money overall. I think, you know, when we think about how we're positioned within the true potential portfolios, one of the key things that we want to do with clients is to give them an all-weather investment solution that helps them navigate through any different type of market condition. So although we've got assets that have maybe been a little bit more volatile, so for example, the commodity positions that we have within the true potential portfolio proposition, which I'm pleased to say have obviously done very, very well. We've got other assets in there which help dampen down volatility overall. So for us, it's, I'm never sure if this is the right word or not, it's always about trying to sort of smooth that journey mm. for clients. You know, we want clients to, to make as much money as possible, obviously, but we want to do that in what is very much a controlled way. Yeah. So for us, it's about diversification, and that is by asset class, 
by region and also what we believe is, is genuinely unique to True Potential, which is by fund manager style as well. And Paul, you were just discussing before we, we started the podcast some of those quite significant moves that we've seen in, in regions. Do you want to bring those to life for, for some of the listeners? Because I think it's quite instructive when you think about the magnitude yeah. of the, the volatility that we've seen. Yeah, I think, you know, the if you take the S&P 500, for, for instance, had a, a quite a severe drawdown of over 10%. Um, but in March, as, as Chris talked about, you've seen quite a strong recovery um, as sentiment improved, we saw a bit of improvement with uh, the Ukraine-Russia um, talks of ceasefire didn't come through in the end, and that helped boost uh, equity market returns. So, on the quarter, the S and P five hundred was down five percent. Uh, closer to home, the UK was up two point nine percent. But you've seen a lot of dispersion within mm-hmm. equity markets, not only at a regional level, uh, but also at a a style yeah. uh, perspective, so um, you had world value down over just over half a percent, whereas world growth, so growth stocks like sort of technology, consumer discretionary, often people associate the likes of Facebooks, the Amazons, so they were off nine and a half percent, so yeah. huge divergence, which goes back to your point of opportunity and calls for active management. And then if you look at the sector mix, Again, you've got huge diversions or dispersions, should I say, where you've got energy, raw materials on one side, energy up over 30%, and then consumer discretionary um, and uh, communication services off around 10%. So a lot of opportunity there at the regional sector. And that style. You know, 40% dispersion is quite a, it's a massive dispersion between yeah. sectors, something that we haven't really seen over the recent number of years where dispersion has been relatively narrow um, between markets and between sectors as well. And I suppose one of the other areas where, you know, it's very easy for us to focus on equity markets in terms of volatility and the moves we've seen there. But when you look back over this quarter, it's been a pretty historic quarter in terms of what we've seen in in bond markets and what we've seen in in credit markets. Kevin, I don't know if you wanted to maybe bring that to life, because I think it's it's a fascinating topic for our, our viewers and probably not one that they will see in the front of the, the paper and BBC News because it's much easier to, to, to focus no, on equity. Absolutely, and I've, the, you know, the moves were so profound I've had to write them down on my notebook to remind myself <laughs> here that we do think that um, driver of volatility was um, political, you know, the political ramifications from Ukraine and Russia, energy prices, yeah. but it was it's also really um, the moves in bond yields which yeah. really began in the first week yeah. of January. So, you know, as Paul mentioned we started the year expecting just around about three or four rate hikes in the US. We're now close to ten, um, and that's those expectations all through the single quarter. So we've seen the the, the most rapid increase in expectations in around about twenty five years in the US. But they're not alone. In the UK, we were expecting <coughs> we're expecting rates to finish at around just over one percent this year. We're now expecting rates to go. Well, the market's expecting rates to go up to two percent. But perhaps the most surprising, what's expected in Europe, where rates have not been above zero yeah. since the summer of 2014. Market now expects rates to get back above zero towards the end of the year and finish the year at 0.25%. So that in absolute terms, these levels seem quite low, mm. but it's the it's the move from here to the end of the year, which is quite profound. And that's really what's making, I think, bond markets quite uncertain. Yeah. The volatility in bond markets was clearly feeding through into equities, particularly in the early part of February. And, you know, it, I think 
and bonds it emphasises the inflation challenge mm. for policymakers. And I suppose that's the, the the change that we've maybe observed over the course of the, the quarter has been this focus from policymakers to really want to address inflation and maybe they can do that because of the growth backdrop that you mentioned right at the start. Yeah, so I think in the, you know, we, we do reference the US a lot. It's the most dominant economy in the markets we look at. I think the policymakers in the US are going to tighten policy with confidence given the underlying uh, building blocks of the economy are very, very strong. Chris has mentioned previously on morning markets that the, you know, the jobs data is just incredible. Um, the real consumption figures we're seeing in the US are are incredible as well. Mm-hmm. UK is just a bit different, um, uh, you know. And the Bank of England have acknowledged this recently that, you know, many of the headwinds the UK economy is facing this year are we repa- effectively importing yeah. from abroad in terms of the energy prices, um, and how profound that is on households. But the UK also is the only major economy which is raising taxes, mm-hmm. so that you know, um, and and that did linger at the end of the quarter. So. UK has a slightly different economic story, and obviously in Europe, a lot more, probably more inflation sensitive, Not have not seen these sort of inflation prints for many decades, and I think the best the best thing you could say for, for your European economy is it will allow policymakers to exit negative interest rate policy, which they, they were looking to do prior to COVID, but they now have this window where they probably can comf- comfortably raise yeah. de- the deposit rate from minus 0.5% to 0% at a minimum by the end of the year. And I suppose the inflation backdrop might actually help as well with well, some uh, of the central banks in terms absolutely. of it, it might take a little bit of heat out of the, the economy. Yeah, and well. I think it would be viewed, you know, it would be viewed as a bit irresponsible if policymakers didn't normalise interest rate policy a little bit just to, yeah. uh, just with the, these inflation pressures. You know, that's a sensible thing to do. And certainly that's a point, Chris, you've been making that this real difference between where inflation is and where policy rates are is it's it's abnormal, really. Yeah, I think, you know, this is I think this is a really important point. You know, a lot of people think around, well, you know, in a, a rising interest rate environment, which we are, but there's a good reason for that. You know, we've got inflation at very high levels, but in general, you know, the economy's recovering. You've got to remember that we've been in what's been quite an abnormal situation. You know, COVID is not a normal situation in any way. And obviously that has happened in the sense that what you've had is government central banks to try had to try and find ways to deal with that overall. Now, what you're seeing is is we're moving away from that. Yeah. You know, we're coming through that recovery. I know different regions are at different stages, but you know, globally we're coming through that overall. And that means that it's not normal to have such low interest rates. And interest rates need to rise. You know, they need to rise to, to cool that demand, to reduce that inflation that we're seeing overall. All of this is just a, a normal functioning monetary policy. It's a normal functioning economy overall. It's just that what we haven't really seen in the recent past is, is interest rates going up so significantly. Well, I suppose because we haven't had to. Because yeah, we exactly. Because inflation has been so low. That we've, yeah. we've, we've, we've now got today, point, yeah. which is, is probably the key difference yeah. um, to, to where we are today. But I suppose as well, you take a step back, you look at some of the charts as well, and they're actually just taking you back to, to pre-COVID yeah. and moving out of some of the, the accommodative policy environment that we've we've got at this point in time. Absolutely. You know, again, we talked about unemployment before, and probably the, the key measure that 
all the different regions are looking at is unemployment levels versus pre-COVID. But obviously, you know, COVID was a, a big factor in changing the employment landscape overall. Yeah. So a lot of what we're seeing is is just that move back to, I don't know if normality is the right word, but some sort of yeah, normality yeah. pre-COVID overall. Uh, you, you mentioned the morning markets, that the US situation today, a similar picture in the, the UK in terms of the vacancy rate and record low unemployment yeah. levels as well. Absolutely. So, you know, I think um, I think the stat that I put on the US was it was for every single unemployed person in the US that are 1.8 job vacancies, yeah. which is is pretty incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it is incredible. If you think about it, it's, um, it's, it's such a huge amount, you know, and it shows that it gives the employee power. You know, if you've got a choice between... It's basically two jobs, 1.8 is basically yeah. two. You know, it really does give you some sort of power around you know, which job you choose, but also how much you get paid for that work as well. And I guess one of the worries is that, you know, you end up with some kind of potential you know, wage price spiral. And that's one of the reasons why you are seeing central banks intervent, intervening overall you know, it's one of the, the key things that the it's a good It's a good point to bring out because that's not what we've seen anywhere as yet. We've yeah. not no, seen a real move in, yeah. in wages and there's yeah. maybe that some of the, the bigger picture factors that are there that, that right, are, yeah. are working towards yeah. that. And uh, I mean, that was the big conundrum for the US economy pre-COVID, which yeah. was similar levels of unemployment, um, but um, wage growth just wouldn't really budge from about yeah. 3%. And, uh, you know, the, the policymakers there were, well belatedly recognised that that just wasn't inflationary but now we're seeing you know with wage growth numbers around seven or eight percent this is as Chris said this is why policymakers should have confidence in raising interest rates because yeah. we might have the same um, levels of unemployment but we don't have the same levels of wage growth yeah. uh, you know these numbers now are are very robust yeah. and maybe to turn it around to the the, the portfolios that we we look after and with growth aligned, Paul, a number yeah. of changes that have been made in that strategy over the course of the, the quarter. Do you want to bring some of those to life? Yeah, absolutely. So I think at a high level, we've continued to prefer equities. Um, we still, you know, they're a real asset and can we, th we believe that returns from equities can um, be higher than what inflation is. Yeah. So that remains. Um, we've continued to be underweight fixed income assets, given where um, markets have been pricing in more interest rate hikes, higher inflation. And so we've been upping our weight into alternatives, which have done very well. We've been owning gold, which has been doing well because it's viewed as a, not only as a safe haven, as Chris mentioned, but um, protection from inflation when inflation spikes. Uh, we've also been adding to um, a, a strategy called Trend, which looks at um, market prices over a time period, whether they're going up or whether they're going down, and looks to um, place trades based on those trends. So it's being long commodities, short equities, short fixed income, which has been doing exactly the, the exact what place want. to be in yeah. the past couple so of weeks. A, a fantastic diversifier for us, a different source of returns. Um, and we've also been adding to another alternative, which is a currency fund, which goes long, so it's in currency pairs and short currency pairs. So being in emerging market currencies that have been doing very, very well, like the Brazilian Real, benefiting mm -hmm. from the boom in commodities. 
Um, so that's what we've been doing at a high level, um, trimming some of our investment grade uh, corporate bond exposure as the um, Ukraine-Russia um, situation unfolded and just taking a little bit off there. So and as you said earlier, favouring the, the large cap UK as uh, well. Uh, absolutely, favouring large cap UK. Uh, large cap in general, really. Right. Um, and, and, and as uh, and Paul mentioned, the, you know, reducing corporate credit there uh, from the fixed income allocation, but some of that was into actually emerging markets, mm. fixed income. So the w- one thing that differentiates, or one of the things that differentiates emerging markets from developed markets has been that the policy reaction yeah. from emerging markets was to raise rates very quickly last year. Yeah. So they didn't feel they had the luxury of, say, forward guidance particularly in Brazil and Mexico, raised rates very aggressively last year, are credible in policy. And so part of the moves were rotating from corporate credit, so that's mainly in developed markets, into emerging market local currency debt, effectively rewarding these um, central banks who have behaved responsibly. And I suppose that's been one of the surprising things, if you'd sort of taken a step back and you talked about the policy environment that we've just talked about, you probably wouldn't have said that emerging markets would be doing well in that environment and emerging market FX would be doing well. It's, it's, yeah. it's a very different scenario. And really what um, the complete, you know, what's completely different from this cycle from the end of the last one or the start of the last one, say in 2010, is that it's emerging market policymakers who've been sort of setting the standard and behaving responsibly yeah. um, and trying to get ahead of the curve, albeit the rise in quality prices through the quarter did make it a bit difficult. And I suppose that's where where history helps in that sense that emerging markets have had to cope with significantly different inflation regimes through many, many years than we've had to see in in developed markets and hence their fear of what inflation can do and, as you say, moving much faster last year. and capital tends to be a bit less sticky in these emerging market economies so they don't have the luxury of, say, forward guidance or time quite often if they're seen to be irresponsible, yeah. it over, even over a short period of time, that capital will move back into safe havens. So they acted responsibly very early, and that's yeah. and that's why we're seeing these sort of moves in those bond markets. Okay. And then, Chris, from a, a true potential portfolios perspective, lots going on that we've been, been talking about, but what's some of our managers been doing, if you think about below the hood, and then what have we been doing um, at the, the overall uh, portfolio level? Yeah, absolutely. So maybe taking it in that order. So with the, the true potential portfolios, there's, there's a sort of dual levels of management, basically. So the, the individual managers that we hold within the portfolios of which Paul and Kevin run Growth Aligned, and they've talked through some changes that Growth Aligned have made. And there's also the changes that we've made where we adjust the allocations to each manager within the portfolio overall. But starting with um, managers outside of Growth Aligned, I'd say trading probably focused around a few different areas. First area is probably around commodities and alternative assets. So you've seen additions come through within commodities. So, for example, Allianz added in a, a commodity product in January. We've seen Goldman Sachs uh, adding to their energy positions as well. Outside of that, I think what you've seen with equity markets is managers that were very overweight equity have probably pared that back just a little bit as we were sort of coming into the, the crisis, if you want to call it that overall. Um, and what you've seen since then is a little bit more money feed back into equities overall. So you started to see managers start to just slightly 
build up those equity positions. And again, that filters into maybe you know, some of the conversations that we were having earlier and around the volatility. Is there a regional nuance to how that's been coming through in the portfolios where a manager's favouring US, yeah. for example, or is it Europe or UK, like, like Paul's region, been alluding to? Yeah, region, I'd say it's developed over emerging markets, so they're preferring developed markets over emerging markets. I'd say right now there's still a little bit of nervousness around Europe, and that's obviously the, the sort of connection there that you have with the conflict that's happening within Russia and Ukraine. But then outside of that, you've seen some positions just move slightly upwards overall. Yeah. I'd say within fixed income, um, if we look at the portfolios right now, we're positioned sort of neutral to underweight. I'd say during the, the kind of depth of the crisis, if, again, if you want to call it that, um, you saw a little bit more money be added into fixed income overall, into sovereign bonds, but only a very small amount of money there. I think if we look at what we've been doing at a, a portfolio level, I'm going to use this as a shameless plug, which is one of the things that we've been doing is we've been introducing new managers over the quarter. So we introduced uh, two new partners, which are Pictay and Waverton. And we also introduced a new strategy with an existing partner, which is UBS. Um, so UBS and Waverton are both income strategies. They're there to, within the income portfolios, really do two things. So the first thing is to allow us to have a higher level of income. Yeah. And the second thing is really to allow us to have a more diversified source of income. So what, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is to look for not just say equities and bonds, but also alternative assets that produce income. So for example, things like infrastructure. And then Pictay as well. Um, so Pictay is a, a non-income strategy, so it sits within our core portfolios currently, um, it's thematic. You know, what do I mean by thematic? I mean that it looks for future sources of growth and then it looks to invest in those sources of growth. So themes that it's looking at are things like um, nutrition, robotics, technology, water, sh water scarcity. And what it does is it looks for individual stocks and bonds that it can invest in overall. So that was my shameless plug. <laughs> Outside of the shameless plug, what else have we been doing? Um, but maybe we, to, to, to bring to yeah. life some of that, what, what we have seen and what has been beneficial to the portfolios yeah. has been the role of, of alternatives and something that, you know, if we go back six, nine months ago, we were talking about in the portfolio context where we were seeing our managers increase the allocation there. Absolutely, yeah. And, and one of the other things that we've been doing within the portfolios is with the trades that we've been doing around the managers that we hold is basically actively increasing those alternative mm -hmm. assets. So the key trade there has really been adding to a fund called Goldman Sachs Balanced. Uh, so that fund has about 34% in alternative assets overall. Yeah. And those alternative assets, are lots of different things. So they hold Trend, which um, Growth Aligned also holds as well. Um, they hold a, a product in there that, that sells volatility as well. Um, they've got an absolute return product in there. So lots of different ways of trying to source return. Yeah. And again, you know, for me, the, the key thing that we're trying to do here is to provide diversification. You know, I know it's something that we could probably say on every single one of these podcasts, yeah. but the reality is, is what we want to do is to give clients really good returns. That is what our aim is overall. And what we want to do that 
is look at different assets that we can use, our managers can use to help provide those returns in different environments. Mm -hmm. And I think what you have seen certainly over this quarter is really the alternative assets that are held by both Growth Line but also by other managers as well have really come to the fore. Yep. You know, they've really proven themselves as good diversifiers but also good providers of yeah. return as well. Yeah. And I think a, a good point to make there, Chris, would be that in diversified portfolios, historically we've thought as alternatives as being a diversifier for equity yeah. risk, yeah. but we're in an environment now where they're actually a good diversifier for fixed income risk. It's a good point. You can, yeah, get, yeah. you can get the capital appreciation, you can get some form of income stream, yeah. and in this particularly difficult stage for fixed income, it is those strategies in the TPP portfolios and in yeah. GA which have done so well. Yeah, uh, I think that you know it's brought out when you look at some of the returns that those yeah. strategies have yeah. earned and what has been a very difficult period for traditional assets for, for one way to describe them. And, and it's, it's an asset class which has really earned its stripes, yeah. you know, in, in, this, in this last quarter or two and really shown, I think, that if we are entering a period where the froth comes off inflation, but inflation remains just a bit stickier yeah. than policymakers would like, then it perhaps is these alternative strategies which become have a stru higher structural weight in the portfolios. Yeah. No, I think that's been a, a really interesting conversation today, bringing together many of the, the different events that we've seen over the, the first quarter. I suppose in traditional podcast style, and we'll go round the, the table and see what everybody's doing this weekend. Chris, do you want to kick us off? So my weekend starts early. So um, basically my weekend starts tomorrow. So when we film this, it'll be Friday lunchtime is when my weekend starts. So I have the pleasure of looking at wedding venues with my, uh, my future bride and also my future mother-in-law. So um, it's um, busy weekend ahead. Yeah. And it's the other thing, what's especially good about the weekend is it's not just confined to Friday afternoon. Saturday it's well. now moved into all day Saturday as well. Yes. So in that sense, um, you know, you can feel the excitement. I was going to say, we can really me. get yeah. your enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. Look forward to speaking with you on Monday then. Uh, yeah, I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. Yeah. Paul, what about yourself? Um, so I've managed to sell my house, but they want to come in for a second viewing on Sunday. So cleaning Saturday to make sure they're not going to change their mind. And there's a small leak in the bathroom that needs fixing. Uh, as well. So Tread carefully. They could so be watching this now. It's a very small leak. Is it? <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Nothing very, very, very fixable. Very, very easy <laughs> to sort out. And then I'm going to go and buy on Sunday my mum a birthday present because I'm going to see her at Easter. Excellent. So very nice. Okay. Excellent. And Kevin, yourself? Well, um, the weekend always begins with um, homemade pizzas for us. That was the tradition we started with the children during lockdown. Lockdown? Yeah, yep. just to try and break the tedium. So, Pizza Friday, and then on Saturday we've got friends coming around. This is a delayed event due to COVID. Friends coming around, um, children can play together, and the adults yep. can and just in, enjoy some wine and beers. Excellent. Yep. Do you make the the whole pizza like? Oh yeah, from scratch. Yeah, the, the, base? Only, the only thing we don't make is the sauce. Can't oh. can't take credit for that. Oh. There is there is something here that we could work <laughs> on between the two. Of you. We've got pizzas and we've got lasagna. lasagna so for anybody yeah. that watch some of our, our lockdown uh, events. We've got a, 
a lasagna. And if you're um, looking for a caterer for the wedding, pizzas, you a know, lasagna. always what available, impressive. Pizza, lasagna, <laughs> what else would the wedding need? But you, made, you made that lasagna from scratch, didn't you? Aye, uh, so... So tomato sauce, that's... So, so we did, um, Was it worth it? We did a, a working from home video and... Um, Basically, the whole bit around me working from home was put to one side, <laughs> and the 30 seconds where I made a lasagna to try and show things that I do outside of work was the main point, and it was used as like the picture on the um, the, the thing we had. But unfortunately, what I would say is maybe I didn't make it from scratch. Oh, so I made the sauce, uh, like yeah. the ragu. Yeah, yeah. technical word. Um, I made the white sauce as well. Yeah, but I didn't make the pasta uh, so and we actually had some viewers we're, write we're, we're in. only finding out about that now well we had some viewers write in and i think one of your recipe yeah someone yeah. actually this is true someone actually genuinely sent me a, a way to make pasta which was very kind of the gentleman who sent it to me so thank you i think when we do next podcast you should bring a lasagna in we get to try it next time i make lasagna right i'll i'll bring take a in. picture of it and if I do make the pasta, I'll take a picture of like me yeah, rolling the machine. Oh, uh, going I think, through I the think machine. we want it. Yeah. Taste test. Try it. Yeah. Yeah. If if I bring it in, we'll move the plant. We'll put lasagna there instead. We'll, well, we'll put it. So we'll put it there. In the, maybe not the hundred and thirteenth episode, but one into the future, yeah. we'll get that yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So as I said before, I put the lasagna in the oven. So let's have a look. Let's see what it, it's come out like right now. That. Perfect. Moira, what would you give it out of 10? Eight. You're supposed to say 10. And one last thing before we, we finish today. Um, we've been incentivizing the, the IM team that are doing morning markets to get new subscribers and get people to sign up. And this week, we've or this month, um, our leading um, presenter is yourself, Kevin. Oh. With 1,698 views. Who's this handsome fellow? Look at that. Touched. Thank you very much. So well, that's the, the target well for, for next month is to get 2,000 views on one of the, the morning market episodes. Well done, Kevin. Thank you. It's a high bar, but yeah. the challenge has been set. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for, for joining us today. And as you can see there, there's awards for, for morning market. So if you haven't subscribed, please do so. Subscribing to the True Potential YouTube channel is quick and easy. Simply go to the channel on your desktop or through the YouTube app on your phone and click the subscribe button. You can then press the notification bell symbol if you wish to be notified as and when new videos are released. Doing this is a great way to keep yourself updated with market developments and personal finance insights. Thank you to everyone who has subscribed and we look forward to continuing to help you do more with your money.